This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. I'm Jamal Dajani, my co-host Jess Ghanam is traveling. Today we will be talking about the Palestinian Nakba or catastrophe, which coincides with uh, Israel celebrating this past week its 70th Independence Day. This is perhaps one of the most jarring and important events of Palestinian history and really the crux of the Arab-Israeli conflict. One major aspect of what happened 70 years ago is the refugee problem that began in 1948. Over 700,000 Palestinians became refugees that year. Many things happened since, but in my opinion, Al-Nakba didn't begin and end in 1948, it continues today. Joining us to discuss this and more is Dr. George Bisharat, the amazing and talented professor of law at UC Hastings. And when I start telling you about him, you'll understand why. Dr. Bisharat is Palestinian-American born in Topeka. That's Kansas, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, he completed his undergraduate work at UC Berkeley, received his master's from Georgetown University, and graduated cum laude from Harvard Law School. But this was not enough for now lawyer George Bisharat. He went on to earn a PhD in anthropology and Middle East studies from Harvard University in 1987, then worked as a trial lawyer for the Office of the Public Defender in San Francisco before joining the UC Hastings faculty in 1991. But this is not all. He is a singer songwriter and blues harmonica player specializing in the chromatic harmonica, which I want to know the difference between harmonica and chromatic (laughs) harmonica later on. And as Big Harp George, that's his new nickname now, he has recorded two albums that earned award nominations and uh, critical acclaim. He is now putting the final touches on a third album, and we will listen to some pieces of uh, from actually your newest album and uh, your first album uh, you have actually brought us copies here and your new album is this the uptown cool the new yes that's the new one it will be called it's big harp george uptown cool and then before that he had wash my horse in champagne (laughs) what a what a fun title So, uh, Professor George Bisharat, welcome to Arab Talk. Jamal, thanks so much for having me. You've recently published an article in The Nation's magazine entitled The Forced Displacement of Palestinians Never Truly Ended. Correct. And you wrote Mm -hmm. The Forced Displacement of Palestinians Never Truly Ended. It continues inside Israel in Umm al-Hiran. A Palestinian Bedouin village soon to be raised and replaced by a new exclusive Jewish community. The pace of settlement in Jerusalem and across the West Bank has hastened under the Netanyahu government, emboldened further by Donald Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Please elaborate on this. And from a legal uh, standpoint, why is the international community is so inept to act on these egregious violations. Oh, that's a that's the the latter part of your question is a is a very big and serious and difficult question. But going back to the original contention about the continuation of the Nakba, I think for many years we have been accustomed to thinking of the Nakba as what occurred in around 1948. It actually began earlier, 1947 at least and lasted until 1950. There were you know, mass expulsions of Palestinians that, that went on. And what occurred was the deliberate expulsion of Palestinians in favor of Jewish settlers. And I think it's important to assign agency to that process. I read the New York Times, for example, and it's actually, you know, coverage of the Nakba has improved over time. And they do acknowledge that 750 or so thousand Palestinians fled or were expelled in 1948. They never say who did it or why. And the who is they were expelled by Zionist Jewish militias. And the why 
is because their expulsion was absolutely essential to the establishment of a majority Jewish state in Palestine. By virtue of their numbers, they were a majority in Palestine in 1948, including mm -hmm. in the areas that were assigned to the Jewish state in the UN partition plan. Mm -hmm. They also, even more importantly or more critically, they owned most of the land. We, I should say, owned most of the land. There was no way to settle huge numbers of Jews with no land base and with a population that wasn't signed on to this, you know, to this scheme. So they were deliberately expelled because they had to be in order to realize the Zionist vision. Now, I think the ambitions of Israel's leadership have probably varied over time. And there may have been at one point a leadership or at many points in, in the history of the state that would have been satisfied to stay within the within the pre-67 borders. But it has been abundantly clear since 1967 that the Zionist movement and the Israeli state has intended to conquer and claim and rule all of Palestine, all of former Palestine. And it's happening today. Exactly. Uh, I want to uh, I want to talk about this and I want to sure. talk about Oslo. Please. But also just like the millions of Palestinian refugees, their children and grandchildren, the Nakba touched you personally. Yes. In the same article, you talk about how your grandfather, you refer to him as Papa, how he lost his home, his livelihood, and how the Nakba ruined him financially. Right. Tell us about Papa. Sure. Well, I, I uh, all I can tell you is, you know, based on hearsay, because he died when I was two years old, and I never had a chance to meet him. And my my grandfather was a very successful man, at least at points in his life. He had great financial success, and we were a relatively fortunate family in Palestine in those days. But the Nakba impacted all Palestinians in one way or another, all of them negatively to one degree or another. Right. And although we were better situated and more fortunate than, than many, than most Palestinians. And I, it, I should also mention that your, uh, your grandparents lived in Jerusalem. That's right. Yeah, my grandfather built a very lovely home called Villa Harun Rashid in the Talbiyah, uh, quarter of, of Jerusalem. He completed it in 1926, and my family lived there. My dad, you know, grew up in the house uh, until they hit financial hard times in, in the 30s during a worldwide uh, depression, and they then rented the house out for and moved uh, fairly close by. But they, they owned the home um, mm -hmm. until at least it was expropriated in 1948. It was, it was taken over in 1948 and then gradually expropriated under, under Israeli law. So, yes, I had always learned a lot about my, my grandfather's successes. Um, I have been recently reading letters of his um, that, he, that he gathered, and I never had really appreciated how devastating the Nakba was to him, um, how it devastated him financially, how it devastated him emotionally. Uh, and I'm quite convinced that it contributed to his relatively early death. He died in 1956, so only eight years after the, you know, the war in Palestine. Um, and his, his anguish and his struggles to regain his financial footing uh, are very poignant reading. Yeah, I mean, you know, imagine, I, I just tell people, imagine overnight you... Be you're becoming homeless yeah. or a refugee or you have to leave the entire country right. like the millions. I mean, at the time, of course, the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. Right. Right. That's why we have half of our population living in diaspora. Sure. Well, I want – you know, I, I always want to be straightforward about the reality that my family was – was better off than most and didn't suffer the most by any stretch of the imagination. What most Palestinians, what many, many, many Palestinians suffered was far worse. Well, obviously, than what my otherwise you will be like now living in a refugee camp in Lebanon. Exactly. That's right. And and uh, many of us have similar stories. I'm, I'm always grateful 
for my uh, father's decision because right. we also lived in West, what will be considered on the border between West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem mm-hmm. now in the Nebilahud neighborhood. Uh-huh. And then when they got pushed out, my entire family, not just my parents, the whole Dejani family, right. then my father made the right decision just to go kind of circumvent go towards Bethlehem Mm -hmm. and down to the uh, Jordan Valley and then back to East Jerusalem. Interesting. And this is why we were all born in East Jerusalem, while many of our uh, family members ended up in either in Jordan or Lebanon. Uh And, uh, you know, so we kind of, I consider us very fortunate to stay close by. To stay close by. So we got pushed from one side of Jerusalem and we, we were actually refugees within Jerusalem. So people don't even understand the multitude of the effect of the Nakba that it made Palestinians refugees from all kinds of different uh, kind of uh, sectors and and economy and and displacement. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. My my, uh, grandfather was deeply, deeply concerned over the plight of the refugees and did his best to uh, raise money in the United States for for refugee relief. He worked closely with Count Folk Bernadotte, Mm. uh, the Swedish diplomat who was the first UN mediator on Palestine. Um, And and, and I actually have the letter that he sent to Count Folk Bernadotte's uh, widow after his assassination in 1949, I believe it was. And you had an emotional journey I mean, you grew up in the yes. U.S., and then you've made your, I, I guess, your first trip, on your first trip to Palestine, was it? And then you went to see, uh, to locate your grandparents' yeah. home. Yeah, that's right. That that was my first visit in 1977. And uh, it was a, yeah, n- n- no one could really precisely locate the, the home for me. None of my relatives could. Uh, the names, the, the street names. Uh, had been changed from you know Arab names to you know to to, to you know Jewish uh, names, and um, and some of the buildings that they had used as landmarks were no longer there. But I did eventually find the home. I spoke to uh, the resident of the main floor, who I later discovered was Zvi Berenson, uh, a justice of the Supreme Court of. Um, uh, of Israel, mm-hmm. and um, he and his wife were not hostile, but not very welcoming. friendly, not particularly welcoming. They wouldn't let me even step inside the door to see the interior of the home at all. And interestingly, you know, they kept claiming to me, "Oh, the family never lived here." You oh, know, huh. which, I mean, it is true that my family had moved out of the house and rented it to, uh, you know, to others, uh, but. It seemed to me that they were sort of comforting themselves with the notion that they had simply, you know, they were living in the home of a, of a rich Arab uh, and not the not taking over the home of a family. Mm-hmm. And you know the, uh, you know the West Jerusalem, the Talbiyil, Baal, Katamon, all these neighborhoods were basically. You know, they house the upper middle class right. of Palestinian Jerusalemites. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, I think a year ago I've had a filmmaker here mm-hmm. and uh, who um, made a documentary, an interactive documentary called mm-hmm. Jerusalem, We Are Here. Mm-hmm. And it focuses on El Katamon neighborhood. I see. So, so she went and she uh, photographed all the homes. Uh-huh. Uh, all the Palestinian-owned homes, and so you can kind of click on the different homes, and each home will tell you a story. Oh, interesting! You know the story yeah. of the family who lived there. Really, I'll send you a link. Yeah, I think, I think you know that, we've yeah. had it. it it's it's yeah. really it's really interesting. I think this should be done all over. Yeah, you know, for all the Palestinians who lost their homes, yeah. not only in Jerusalem, Haifa. Jaffa and different uh, right. town, towns and villages. I want to fast forward a little bit because everything is, we, we, we started talking how the Nakba never ended. Right. And um, it's, it's still ongoing. Right. I mean, in the recent events that we have been watching on TV in Gaza, mm-hmm. the, uh, the atrocities happening in Gaza, 
the killing of demonstrators, including children and journalists. Again, I have to ask the same question why the international community is silent about this. Where are all the progressive voices? And, you know, we've actually have, we've coined a terminology for this, calling these people PEPs, progressive except on the issue of Palestine. Right. It's not because of, of international law, unfortunately, that injustices continue and even accelerate in Palestine. I do want to make one sort of dis- differentiation between the Nakba and oppression of Palestinians more, more generally. So mm-hmm. I define the Nakba as the forced displacement of Palestinians in favor of Jewish, Jewish settlement. Um, and that process has not stopped. That is to say, Palestinians within Israel itself, and I cited the case of, of Umm al-Hiran, mm-hmm. but there are others other places, uh, in, around, in and around Jerusalem, in the West Bank, Palestinians are still being forced from their land. Their land is being taken over for, for Jewish settlement. So that process is ongoing. It is not as cataclysmic and as outwardly violent as the original phase of the Nakba was when people were expelled at the point of the gun. Um, it now happens in more subtle forms and in, uh, in administrative forms, but it continues. Um, steady, you know, sort of drip, drip, drip of, of, of expulsions of people from their land. Now, all colonized people resist these processes and the Palestinians are no different. And it is their resistance to the Nakba or the forced displacement that has generated all of the repressive response by Israel. Right. And I think one of the reasons that, that Israel is so willing to uh, use deadly lethal force on the, at the Gaza fence right now is because they don't want any idea of a possible return to creep into the minds of the Palestinians as a possibility. They, should... they want to emphatically say – don't even think about it. That's 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 the use. That's the reason I think the one of the main reasons Mil- for their use of extreme violence. And just to remind our listeners, of course, uh, Gaza is the largest open air prison in the world. Uh, I think the population. I mean, if they if you can count it, is approximately 1.8 million people living in a on a very tiny piece of land. But what you've mentioned, the fear from having those indigenous people returning to their villages and towns, the fact is that most of the people in Gaza are not from originally from Gaza. Right. So right. That, this is very important. They are all sure. refugees <clears throat> who came from yeah. Haifa and, and Jaffa and different. Yeah. In fact, the camps were initially, when they were set up, they, had, they were set up you know, with letters, mm-hmm. the letters or the initials of the towns and villages they, they came from. Right, right. I, I believe the figure is 80% of the people of the Gaza Strip are actually refugees from uh, lands within Israel, what, or what is today So Israel. I think you've made a very, really important point that this kind of action, this uh, uh, violence by Israel, we've been seeing snipers yeah. shooting at unarmed demonstrators and right. you're really attributing this because they don't they want to make sure not a single one of them makes it across the basically the border right. that they, Israel they just don't created. want even even the kernel of an idea to to take root that people can return they they want to banish that from anybody's consciousness now they they're failing you know even despite the violence uh, but but I think that is part of the motivation yeah, but I also find it really astounding to just, especially when, you know, as a journalist, we've had now two journalists who have been shot. Right. I don't see worldwide condemnation. No. I've seen, like, things people react, for example, and justifiably so. Uh, uh, I just cite one case, the assassination in London, by supposedly by by Russia, by, yeah. by Russia. and yeah. we have this uh, 
or worldwide condemnation. Yet there was a Palestinian who scientist who was assassinated, right? You know, in in Malaysia, uh, in Malaysia yeah. and again deafening silence. Yes, and I'm confused about it. You should be. We all should be. It's not an accident. Um, I think the you know Israel has succeeded in aligning itself with very powerful forces in the world system. It uh, presents itself to the world as the leader in you know how to combat the scourge of of terrorism, and it relentlessly attacks any critics as anti-Semites, and it. Uh, devotes enormous resources into forming public opinion and even more importantly, uh, influencing policy. And in the United States, this has been going on ever since 1942 in the Biltmore program of the Zionist movement before the establishment of the state of Israel. The Zionists then made a, a, a wise, from their perspective, strategic judgment that the United States was the coming world power, was the one to really cultivate. And they, you know, since 1942, they've been working very hard and pouring immense resources into winning this country over as, you know, as 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 an ally. Um, and if 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 it weren't for the terrible results. I would admire their effort. In other words, they've been extremely effective and mm-hmm. uh, and people have sacrificed a great deal in order to accomplish this. It's just pathetic that it is for such a, 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 a bad purpose. Do you think that they are now, um, they've reached the kind of the pinnacle of their success with, we have Donald Trump yeah. in the White House. Mm-hmm. And you have the decision, and it's going to happen very soon, the moving of the U.S. embassy right. to Jerusalem. Right. And 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 um, let's talk about, number one, about the action by this administration. And, and then, of course, you, you are a lawyer and the legality right. uh, behind this action or the illegal action. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. I, let's hope it's the pinnacle. <laughs> That is to say, there's no further up to go. I mean, and, I feel like they've taken the, over Jerusalem. I because, mean, this is yes, your hometown. Yes, right. Your parents, grandparents right, right. came from there. My parents, I was born there. Yeah. And now they've completed, you know, they, that's, this is the biggest prize sure. of all. Yeah. I think that the Zionist movement is now, again, comfortable asserting its plan to control all of Palestine. There was a period of time when the international community was aligned behind the so-called two-state solution, and it was necessary for the Israelis to mollify other states, including the United States, and to claim that it supported the two-state solution. I guarantee you, I mean, its actions on the ground always said otherwise, and I think behind closed doors, you know, we'll, we'll eventually know that they never supported this solution, mm-hmm. and they have now made sure that it's virtually impossible to achieve. Now, you keep asking about legality, and, and I haven't really answered you, um, so let me let me do that. Israel has no claim, no legitimate claim of sovereignty to, uh, to Jerusalem. Under the UN partition plan, even let's – assuming that the UN, you know, even had authority to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to designate – somebody else's land as you know as as a part of a state or not part of a state under the UN partition plan Jerusalem was supposed to be a separate uh, a, a, a separate they call it corpus separatum to use that's the Latin term right so it was supposed to be neither part of the Jewish state that was provided in the UN partition plan of 1947 nor part of the Arab state so its sovereignty status is, um, for that reason, indeterminate. Um, the the plan itself was never actually implemented, and you know Israel de facto controlled West Jerusalem as of 1948-49, uh, um, and then took over the rest of Jerusalem and and greatly expanded the municipal boundaries in um, in 1967. Uh, but no government mm-hmm. up until the United States had actually recognized Israel's sovereignty, and the idea was that that 
sovereignty is supposed to be determined you know, through negotiations. There is a basic principle of the UN Charter that, uh, that, that says you cannot acquire land by conquest. That was, that's, it's part of the UN Charter, the inadmissible, in, inadmissibility and part of, of territorial fourth, acquisition for by Geneva war. For the Geneva Convention, you cannot also transfer the population. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. So what Israel has done vis-a-vis -vis Jerusalem, not to mention many other parts of the country, is blatantly illegal under international law. Now, why does it go on without, you know, without anybody challenging it? Well, it, it is because of the political factor. It's, you know, um, and be, because the international, you know, the, the structure of the United Nations is such that um, it's really only the Security Council that can take enforcement action. Mm -hmm. And because of U.S. backing in, uh, in the Security Council, its willingness to exercise its veto for any uh, uh, attempt through the Security Council to do anything against Israel's interests, um, you know, the, the Security Council is hamstrung. It can't really effectively do anything. So despite the blatant illegality, there's no real way that people have, have you know, there's no real, real way at the official level to do anything about this. That's why we have, that's why we have to have BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions. That's it. it, it the popular movement mm -hmm. uh, for BDS, the initial call was in 2005. That was one year after the International Court of Justice had declared that Israel's wall, its so-called security barrier, Palestinians call it the, the apartheid wall. Yeah. The International Court of Justice decided by a vote of 13 to 2 that the, uh, that the wall was illegal and had to be dismantled and called on third-party states to you know, push to make that happen. Nobody did anything. No states took any action whatsoever. So 170 or 171 Palestinian civil society organizations asked for international solidarity mm -hmm. and called for uh, enforcement of international law with respect to the wall and with respect to broader issues as well. Um, and, uh, and, you know, said basically, look, if, if, you know, if people at the official level, if politicians, if judges, if, you know, if, if the responsible officials are shirking their duties, then we as people have to take the initiative ourselves. So that's, that's, you know, that's the game in town at this stage. That is the vehicle for the enforcement of international law. You're listening to the voice of Dr. George Bisharat. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We are going to be discussing the issue of Palestine for the entire hour and, of course, uh, the 70 years since 1948, since the Palestinian Nakba and the catastrophe. Back to the issue of Jerusalem, Israel's claim, or no claim, because I don't see the legality behind it, is that they are creating facts on the ground and that they have their seat of government, the Knesset, in Jerusalem, and therefore people should recognize Jerusalem as their capital because they're conducting business out of Jerusalem. Right. And every country, every sovereign country should be able to determine where its capital is. And in, in many cases, they're using also the squatter's law, like now we have all these people living in Jerusalem yeah. and it's ours. Right. So international law has a number of different sources. There is um, treaty law, that mm -hmm. is the, the law that uh, it's basically contractual law that nations can create that are mutually binding when they enter into treaties or agreements, right? And those can be bilateral, they can be multilateral, they can be, you know, they can involve many, many, many states, as many do. Um, but uh, law is, international law is also created by custom. And what that means is what states actually do in practice that other states react to or treat as legal and binding. So Israel has for a number of years engaged in very deliberate, very studied attempts to transform 
the principles of international law by acting, by actually deliberately violating the law and then hoping that in the aftermath, other states will accept and concur. And they have not really achieved very much success in this. They do have, I mean, now with respect to Jerusalem, they have the backing of the most powerful state in the world, the United States, uh, but they don't have broad international recognition of, uh, of that. Most states continue to view uh, the status of Jerusalem as indeterminate. And so <clears throat> they've, this, this, this strategy of trying to break the law, trying to amend the law by breaking it and then hoping that other states will accept it, that also goes to other aspects of their behavior vis-a-vis the Palestinians, including their uses of, of military weaponry in repressing uh, Palestinian resistance in the occupied territories. There, there are a lot, lot of dimensions to it. So uh, moving forward, and uh, we cannot ignore the big elephant in the room, which is the Oslo, mm. the Oslo Accords. Right. Uh, have we drunk the Oslo Kool-Aid, and I'm talking about Palestinians and the international community, or do you feel people are now waking up that this was an egregious mistake that should not, we should not have well, even I, entered into yeah. it. I, I mean, I think, I think there, were, there were skeptics at the time of the signing of, of the agreements in 1993. Um, and that skepticism and the reasons for the skepticism have only multiplied over, the, over time. Um, and I think, you know, in essence, Oslo has proved to have provided Israel with a very convenient cover for the continuation of the Nakba. That's it, it, you know, regardless of the intentions of the Palestinians, and I believe that the people who started down this course had the best of intentions, um, but they made a grave miscalculation about the other party. And the other party, I think, entered into this agreement you might say in bad faith, but but we were. I have to say we were extremely naive mm-hmm. about about these matters. And one of the, I mean, you know, lawyers. I, I don't think are the answer to every problem. I don't. I don't. You know, I'm not a. I'm not a. Although I am a lawyer myself, I don't think we have all the answers. But I will say that. With respect to the negotiation of of the Oslo principles, there were there were no lawyers in our room in in the room on our side. We had no legal advice, and our leaders, sad to say, were taken by the other side. That was much more clever, much more deliberate. Had much better negotiators. Had much better uh, a much better team that included lawyers, and so. You know, when we fault the uh, the Oslo Accords, when we actually go back to the text of it, there are a lot of holes that that were there from the beginning, and we just didn't, you know, our leadership didn't uh, didn't acknowledge them, didn't understand them, didn't foresee the difficulties that could arise, and uh, and 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 so, you know, although there have been many obvious violations of the accords by 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 Israel. There are many areas in which they haven't necessarily violated them and we, we just don't have any uh, tools or any response because we, we – you know, Trump is fond of saying this was the worst deal of the century. No, the, the Oslo Accords were the worst you know, deal for the Palestinians of, of any international agreement that I can think of. But there comes a point, right? I don't know when, two years down the line, five five years down the line, 10 years down the line, and you're seeing no progress. Right. Uh, You know, I don't want to get into all the- 25 years. Intricate details, I know, but I'm just having a countdown. Right. That at some point, people who have been had wake up and they say, hey, wait a minute, and you're talking 25 years down the line, and we, the Palestinians engaged in security coordination, right. uh, building a police force really to protect the settlers and not to, right. Right. you know. 
well, provide protection to its own population. Yeah. And meanwhile, the I think the number of settlers has quadrupled. Yes. Since. Right. Well, here's 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 a very sad reality that's part of this process as well. It, you know, I, there's there's the continuing Nakba. There's also what I would recall I, I would call the vivisection of the Palestinian people. Vivisection means cutting something up while it's alive, mm-hmm. right? So we have been cut up into fragments. We, you know, the fragmentation of the Palestinian people over the last 25 years, you know, since Oslo and partly because of Oslo has been extreme. You know, we, we, um, we, it, it is, it is difficult for us to even uh, call ourselves one people at this stage because we live in such different circumstances. If you live within Israel and, you know, depending on where you live within Israel, if you live in Jerusalem, if you live in the West Bank, if you live in Nablus as opposed to Al-Khalil, you know, everybody is living in a different reality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to, you know, um, one of the one of and then obviously those of us in in the diaspora are are completely uh, removed, you know, and living living completely different lives mm-hmm. as well. So right. our, all of these daily uh, differences in daily experience give rise to different outlooks and different consciousness and 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 the like. And so we are we are being cut into little bits. Obviously, you know, divide and rule. And this mm-hmm. is it. Part of a deliberate policy to weaken us as a people. So I think one of the key things that is incumbent on us and that is within our power to execute is to reassert our unity as a people. And, you know, they go out and poll and they say, oh, the Palestinians believe this. Well, who do they – who are they – you know, who are they polling? Are they polling Palestinians in Syria and Lebanon and the United States and within Israel? No, no, they're, they're, they've downsized Palestine to the West Bank essentially. So they talk to a few people in the West Bank and they issue a poll saying Palestinians support this or they support that. No, you know, we're, we're uh, many people, we're 11 or 12 million people all around the world and the first step toward the reconstitution of our movement for justice is for us all to say we are all Palestinians, whether we live there or there or there, and we have to fight for our interests as a collectivity, not as individuals. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's it's not good enough if it's good for Ramallah. You know, mm-hmm. everybody talks about the Ramallah bubble, right? Mm-hmm. People live. Some people live pretty well there, mm-hmm. and. You know, but that's not Palestine. That's not all the Palestinians, and we have to assert our uh, our unity as a people first, and then we have to develop an effective political voice that represents all of us. You're absolutely right. Uh, we're getting a lot of uh, comments uh, online and on Facebook, and uh, people want to kind of hear a little bit about. I guess solutions. We obviously we don't have the military option. Uh, the Palestinians are in no position at this point to fight a nuclear power country, a nuclear, you know, the fourth largest, third, I don't know, largest army in the world. And the negotiations obviously have failed. And you you've mentioned BDS. Yeah. How will this work? BDS is a, is a, is a very uh, important, essential component of a broad movement that has to occur on many different fronts, um, and uh, it, so it is. It is necessary, but not sufficient, in my view. Um, it, it's. It's. I, I. I hope no one misunderstands me. I totally support BDS, and you know, encourage everyone to engage in it as you know as as much as possible. I don't think it will alone carry us where we need to go. And one of the things that I think is urgent myself uh, and others may disagree with me is that it it is really damaging to our movement as a whole that we no longer have a collective vision of an end goal 
BDS talks about equality for Palestinian citizens of, 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 of Israel. It talks about you know, an end to occupation. It talks about the right of return. That's all good, um, but it doesn't say how or it, within what framework, how that can be achieved politically. And I think that ambiguity is a weakness. And I understand why at the time the movement uh, started in 2005, it was necessary. But we need to urgently get together as a people and come to a collective judgment about how, you know, about what we're trying to achieve. And for my money, what I think we really need to do is to restore justice as the guiding light of our movement. And I think we have to think about justice as the end. And then we have to think about the means to get us there. I think that there, there was a time when we thought a state was the means to achieve justice. Mm -hmm. To me, the state that is actually emerging looks like a coffin for the burial of Palestinian rights, not a vessel for the achievement of Palestinian rights. So I'm not into a state that is another police state. You're, you're talking a state. You, are you talking about the two-state solution, the Palestinians yes, I'm talking eventually about, having? Yes, I'm, talk, I'm talking about what the, the only kind of state that could possibly emerge under these circumstances what about, would be one that would have no significant sovereignty right. and that would be a repressive police state that serves the interests just I mean, and you don't think it's there is, there now. And you don't think there is any hope for having a, a one democratic state for all of its citizens? Oh, I think there is. I think, I mean, that is, that is what I believe is, is the only way to go. Now, I don't want to put the cart before the horse. I'm just one voice. I don't mean to dictate to anybody. I would love to get in a room with a bunch of people and argue my perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, I would respect a collective judgment, whatever it turns out to be, if it is the product of a democratic process. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we can get together as Palestinians and together say, okay, you know, this is, this is what we can realistically achieve and we are willing to make trade-offs and maybe if some people benefit more from this, then we can compensate others in some other way. You know, as long as it is not dictated by, by some leader based on narrow interests. But to me, it is fairly obvious that the only real way to achieve full justice or even an approximation of justice for all Palestinians, the main three communities, there are many divisions within these, but the main three communities being the Palestinian citizens of Israel, nearly two million people, the people under occupation, and the people in the diaspora. I've known you f on the lighter side because we have few minutes left yeah. <laughs> as a professor, a lawyer, a writer, and of course you have a PhD in anthropology and Middle East studies, but I want to know a little bit more about your, or I want to, I, I guess, but I want to learn more about Big Harp George. Sure. <laughs> and I sure. want to talk a little bit about your new musical career, something I'd that you've to. been doing yeah. as a hobby for years and right. now all of a sudden right. you, you, are on your th you are on your third album. Right, right. Well, thanks for asking. Um, I, have, uh, I have played music and sung music ever since I was maybe 10 years old. I think I was in my first band when I was 10 or so as a singer. Uh, I started uh, playing harmonica when I was maybe 13 or 14 years old, and I started playing in start, started playing blues uh, in bands when I was maybe 16 or 17 years old, um, and I have never stopped playing music. I've always played music. I've recorded with other musicians off and on over the years. Uh, some years ago, inspired by a particular musician by the name of Paul DeLay, who was from Portland, Oregon, uh, I started focusing on the chromatic harmonica. There, there are lots of different kinds of harmonicas, but most blues is played on a small 10-hole, it's called a diatonic harmonica, mm -hmm. which is a wonderful instrument, and that's also what I grew up playing mostly. 
a chromatic is bigger physically. It's bigger. It's got, you know, some of them have 12 holes, some of them have 16 holes, and they're just like huge compared to the diatonic harmonica. Right. That's why I call myself Big Harp George, because <laughs> okay. I, I now feature the chromatic harmonica. Okay. Now, no one actually in the history of blues has ever featured the chromatic, so I'm doing something that has never been done before. Um, and where have you been playing? I mean, for at least our listeners right here in the yeah. Bay Area. Well, uh, I, I've played a number of times at Biscuits and Blues here in San Francisco. I will be, I'm going to be doing a series of, uh, of uh, album release gigs. Um, I'm going to be starting – I may add others, but I'm going to be playing on uh, September 24th at Eli's Mile High Club in Oakland. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be playing uh, at, at Biscuits again on October 12th. I'll be playing at the Club Fox in Redwood City on the 17th of October. And then I have the 26th of October at the Smoking Pig down <laughs> down in Fremont. I mean, it sounds yeah. like now you're devoting your, like almost a full time. Yeah. So I had, in 2015, I took emeritus status at UC Hastings, where I had been teaching since 1991. I do go back and teach when they need me and when I'm willing. Uh, but otherwise, I'm devoting most of my efforts these days to music. And I, a, a, a big part of this, too, is that I write, I write my own music. I want to I wanna try to listen to some of this and see if we can also patch it, patch it in, in, in the studio so our listeners on uh, Facebook can also get a, a taste of it. So we are going to be, uh, you know, putting this, some of this music on. And so how is the reception in the Bay Area for what you're doing? Well, uh, it's 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 been good. It's been I've had you know some very good um, club dates, uh, and it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, I haven't worked my way up the you know the, the ladder the way a lot of musicians have been you know, playing for decades. But the reception has been has been enthusiastic and supportive, and I've gotten a lot of airplay. From so I'm going to put a little bit of music on. I would understand it used to be like that. Rocking new joint, hip cats can't stay away. I'm headed there now to my local right aid. Down to the right aid. Oh, baby, down to the right aid. Down to the right aid. Oh, baby, down to the right In the pill line, waiting for his fix. Used to source meds in the park. How did it come to this? A Katie shopping canes, or thinking maybe a knee brace. Body parts sagging all over the place. Down to the right aid. Oh, baby, down to the right aid. Down to the right aid. Oh, baby, down to the right listen more as we as we kind of I'll have you take us out of the yeah. show 
uh, in few minutes. You've been listening for the entire hour to the voice of Dr. George Bisharat. Dr. George Bisharat is a professor at UC Hastings. He also has a PhD in anthropology and uh, in Middle East studies. Uh, he's an activist. He's a writer. And to our pleasant surprise, he's an accomplished <laughs> musician. And this is really exciting. I mean, you know, to have you right here in the Bay Area and, and uh, to, I mean, I, I, do you have a website so yeah, people yeah. can? BigHarpGeorge.com. So so BigHarpGeorge.com. You have now three CDs. We played some from Big Harp George, Uptown Cool, and you have another CD. And people can buy these. Where? Yeah, they can. They're they're available Amazon, iTunes, uh, Apple Music. You know, ev- everywhere. Um, Spotify. There is a song about Palestine on the other album, um, Wash My Horse in Champagne. That's the name of the album and one of the songs. But the song about Palestine is called Justice in My Time. Well, we'll have to have you here for an entire hour. Be fun. Just to talk and maybe maybe also bring your instrument. Sure. And perform a little bit here because sure. we kind of, uh, I think, just uh, talking politics and talking about Al-Nakba all yeah. day long and then right. giving you 10 minutes to talk about your music is not enough. But Understood. we are grateful yeah, to you. have you right here in the studio and we're going to you know, sign off and leave our listeners uh, listening to your album. And uh, this is from Uptown, Uptown Cool. And you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Discontent with your life And you're ready to make a move What's it gonna be? Man or mouse Don't get shackled by the truth Only fools think the truth matters When in truth it just distracts your vast potential